when you get to heaven, that great day when you get to heaven, is there someone you want to see? Now, I know we all want to see Jesus. We all, we're going to see Jesus. We all want to see Bible characters. And you all want to see your family, right? But outside of the Bible characters and Jesus, is there one person you want to look up and say, I want to see so-and-so when I get there? There's one person I want to meet, and maybe because you know, I was born in Sudan, my parents were missionaries, I grew up reading the missionary books. One person I want to meet, his name is Adronium Judson. Do you know about him? Okay. Probably, I think, the best missionary biography you could ever read. It's called To the Golden Shore, The Life of Adronium Judson. Parents, maybe you ought to make your kids read this book because when I was suffering in India, when we didn't have air conditioning and you know, we couldn't sleep at night when it was 95 degrees in your house, when you're suffering or whatever, and you think you had it bad, I would read his biography, autobiography or biography and realize how good we had it when he didn't. Let me just tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he is the first missionary that American Missionary Board sent out. Now, there were some missionaries that maybe went out on their own before him, but he's considered the first missionary to ever be sent out by American Missionary Board. He was actually a Congregationalist when he left on the boat, and he left in 1812, and you probably know 1812 is a pretty critical year in the history of the United States. But he married Anne Hazeltine, and they call her Nancy, so I'll call her Nancy. And he married her two weeks before they got on the boat to go, to go to be the first missionary to go to Calcutta, India. It took about six months on the boat to get to India, where he thought he was going to be a missionary in India. And while on the boat, he studied the scriptures and realized he was wrong about baptism because Congregationalists do infant baptism. So when he got there, he met with William Carey and different Baptists there, and he switched from being a Congregationalist to a baptism. So the first thing he lost was his support, because he's not a Congregationalist anymore who can support him. So he had to write back, and he actually sent another missionary back saying, hey, go back and try to raise some money. But he lost his entire support. Tells me a lot about him. Then he lost his country, because India says, no, you cannot come on the... Stay on that boat... And sadly, while he's on the boat, he couldn't go on the land. His wife lost one of their babies. So he lost his country. He thought he'd be a missionary in India. William Carey was there. India was much more advanced because the British were there. But he ends up going to Burma, what we call Myanmar today, where I got to spend three years. So he lost his support. He lost his country. Then he lost his children. He ended up having three children die with his wife, Nancy. Um, after, and then... After Nancy got ill, she had to get on a boat. Often when the missionaries got sick, they would put them on a boat and go to somewhere where the weather was better, try to get them acclimated. Nancy went back to America for two years, and she was quite the celebrity here because people didn't know about Burma, and so she spent two years in America, so he was out his wife for two years. But when she came back in 1824, Britain and Burma went to war, So all the white missionaries or all the Western men were arrested by the Burmese government because they would consider them spies. So he lost his freedom then. Judson was put in two different prisons for two years. And let me just read you one paragraph. tells you how bad he had it. So at the age of 36, Judson was in prison along with 100 men in a single room. He was bound with three pairs of chains and feet were fastened in stocks, which at times were elevated so that only his shoulders touched the ground. The room in which he and many other prisoners were crowded was without a window, and it felt like a fiery furnace under the merciless glare of the tropical sun. The stench of the place was terrible. Vermin crawled everywhere. And the jailer, Mr. Spotted Face, was a brute in human form. 
Every afternoon, the gong would sound at exactly 3 p.m., and Mr. Spotted Face would walk in, and he would select one prisoner for execution that afternoon. And Mr. Judson, for two years, uh, thought he could die, but he never did. Many prisoners died, but Nancy, his wife, was outside the prison, constantly bribing the guards to bring food in. She even brought his translation of the Burmese Bible and hid it in a pillow so that he could continue his work there. But he spent two years in that prison, and eventually they released Judson so he could be the translator to try to negotiate peace with the prison. But the cost of that time in prison was, was more on his wife because Nancy died two years later, and then the two-year-old baby, Maria Judson, died. So he lost a wife, and now that's four children who had died. And that caused him finally to lose his sanity. Judson's grief led him to go into eventual retreat and seclusion. He didn't want to have anything to do with anybody. He went into the jungle, and he built a hut there, and he called it the Hermitage, and he spent 40 days in the jungle eating little besides minimal rice rations. He dug his grave because he was waiting to die and wanted to die, and he spent many hours contemplating death. The jungle was tiger-infested, and many of the locals feared that he would not live. He'd be eaten. And when he returned safely from his self-exile, everyone was surprised he had survived. And over the course of that time, Adronium increasingly emerged from his spiritual darkness with new resolve to reach Burma for Christ. In 1835, Judson completed the translation of the Burmese into, Bible into Burmese. And actually, most Burmese still use that Bible today. When I go teach in Burma, and we're gonna, I'm not going to be able to go in two months, Americans can't, and they're not letting Americans in, but I'm going to Zoom. But it's kind of frustrating because all, half the pastors use the Burmese Bible from 1835, and then others use the updated versions, which are more accurate and a little better, but, but they still love that Bible and they use it. But in 1835, he married the widow of another missionary, Sarah Hall Boardman. Uh, Sarah Boardman's husband had died there. They had eight children, but three of them died in infancy. Judson would then, for the first time in 38 years, return to the United States on furlough, and there he commissioned a lady to write a book about his life named Emily Chubuck, and he ended up marrying that lady. So he enjoyed a decade of evangelistic fruitness, especially among the Karen people. Today, there are probably 7 million Christians in Burma that would trace their Christian ancestry to him. But... uh, um, So altogether, he lost two wives and, I think, six children. The first wife he married, none of the children lived. And Ping and I got to go in 2017. We took a road trip, which is quite interesting in Burma, and we drove about a day to get down to where Mulamine was, where uh, his church was. We went to the first Baptist church that was started, the oldest church in Myanmar, which was started in 1827. And the graves are in the church. Now, Judson's grave is not there because he died at sea, so they, they buried his body at sea, but Anne Hazeltine's wife is there. But when you go in that church and you look around, immediately you see the children's graves. Now, if you go to a graveyard here, you don't know those gravestones are children necessarily, right? Because they're all looking alike. You don't know if it's adult or children until you read the, the, what it says on there. But when you go to a graveyard there, you see this grave stone in cement, and you know it's children. So I saw several of his children's graves there, and it's touching. So just to, we get into Psalm 77 tonight that teaches us that even great men like this man who has led millions to Christ uh, had a time of spiritual depression, a time he wanted to die. 
And he's not the only one. Someone mentioned Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon had gout, and he suffered from depression. Uh, William Cowper, one of my favorite hymn writers and poets, he suffered depression. And lots of people in the Bible did. So let's, uh, let's look at Psalm 77, and it's 20 verses, and I'm going to read it out loud first. To the choir master, according to Jedthun, a psalm of Asap. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit fails. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeem your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's pray. Father, tonight as we open up Psalm 77, may you teach us. May you encourage us. May you strengthen us for when the desert trials come, when the discouragements come, and Lord willing, hopefully not the depressions. But if they do, may we rely on you. May we cry out to you. And may you comfort us. May you encourage us. Because we know you'll never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name, amen. The heading says to the choir master, who apparently is named Jedithun, and a psalm of Asap. Who is Asap? Well, Psalm 73 begins book three of the five books in Psalms. And so Psalm 73 to Psalm 89 are the psalms in book three. And Asap would author 12 of the psalms. He would author Psalms 50 and then 73 through 83. So when you're reading Psalm 73 through 83, you've got 11 consecutive psalms of this guy named Asap. We know that Asap was Heman's brother from 1 Chronicles 6.39, and we know that Asap, Heman, and Ethan were all appointed to be singers for worship in the tabernacle in 1 Chronicles 15, 16, and 19, and 2 Chronicles 5. So this is a singer, but he's also get, was author, the Holy Spirit used him to write 12 of the Psalms. What kind of Psalm is this? It would be called an individual lament. And what is the cause or the reason for this lament? We don't know, but there's a lot of possible truth to the fact that perhaps it's written when the northern kingdom was sent into exile in 722 B.C. Perhaps it's after a military defeat. We don't know, but whatever it is, it caused Asap some tremendous, tremendous crisis. The main idea of this psalm is, in the time of great personal crisis, 
Asap, the psalmist, found great relief in meditating upon the past triumphs of God. So should we. Maybe it's a death of a loved one. Maybe it's a critical illness. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's a loss of a job. Maybe it's abuse of many kinds. Maybe it's just loneliness in this world. All those things can trigger discouragement. They can trigger depression. Like Adronium Judson, Charles Spurgeon, William Cowper. In the Bible, we see characters like David, Elijah, Jonah, Job, Moses, Jeremiah, and even Paul said that he even despaired of life at times. So let's look at the paragraph. We have three paragraphs, Asap's complaint, verses 1 to 9, Asap's contemplation, verses 10 to 15, and Asap's comfort, verses 16 to 20. So let's get into verses 1 to 9. When you read the Psalms, and I've covered this many times, always look for the personal pronouns. So here, when you look for verses 1 to 9, you're going to see the word I, my, and me either 20 or 21 times, depending on your translation. The ESV, I think it's 20. So it's all about ASAP, all about me, all about I, I, I. But then when you look here in the first nine verses, it mentions God or Lord maybe six times, and then his or he another six times. So it's pretty much all about ASAP here, because this is his depression. This is his complaint here. So first off, he begins by requesting God. He's going to request, reach out to God. He's going to um, remember God. He's going to recall God's deeds, and he's going to give rhetorical questions to God in these first nine verses. So first off, he requests God. He cries out to God. He calls out for two things. Help me and hear me. In verse 1, he says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God. It's as if he's shouting out to God. You'll see in the next verses, his hands are up. Okay? So he's saying, help me, God. And then he's saying, and he will hear me. He's confident that God will hear him. You know, and we have that same assurance too, don't we? You may not understand your discouragement, your trial, why you're in the desert, but Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 to 16, is the verses that every single Christian should know and have memorized, I think, because the psalmist didn't have these verses, but we know that it says in Hebrews four fifteen to 16, For we do not have a high priest, the high priest is Jesus Christ, who was unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but the one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Verse 16 says, that Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. It's a picture of Jesus on the throne with a scepter, waiting for us to come into his very throne room, and Jesus will always extend the scepter and willingly allow us to come in and talk to him. So the psalmist is crying out to God. He's saying, hear me. He knows God will hear him. He just doesn't know why his prayers are not being answered. So verse 2, he reaches out to God. He says, in the day of trouble and in the night of tribulation. Most likely, it's a day of disaster for the nation Israel. Perhaps it's a military defeat. In the night, he says, my hand reaches out to you. That's not uncommon. In Jewish culture, it was common to raise hands toward heaven when they're praying. But this is a psalm of anguish. This is a psalm of a man crying out. His soul refuses to be comforted. Let me ask you, when was the last time you spent hours and hours at night or the whole night praying for something? Not too often, probably, right? Maybe there was something, but our prayers are usually pretty short, right? 
So someone said, why does God let things go on as long and as tragically as they do without God giving us any tokens of his increase or concern? And we talked about this in our Psalm 91, in our Psalm 88 message. Sometimes it's if God isn't hearing us. God isn't answering our prayer. But God does answer the prayer. But I think it's good to review tonight, and we went through this in our Psalm 91 message, why doesn't God answer some of our prayers? And I'll give you five reasons. I've given to them before, but it's time to review them. Number one, we ask for wrong motives. James 4.3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask for wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. You know, you can ask for a Ferrari. God's not going to give you a Ferrari. He might give you a 2005 Honda, but he's not going to give you a Ferrari. So wrong motives. There are people that, you know, mostly in Pentecostal or, or false teaching churches will ask for wrong motives because the name it and claim it, false teaching. Number two, unconfessed sin. Isaiah 59.2 says, Because your iniquities have separated you from God, your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he, God, will not hear. G- James tells us in James 5.16 that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. But if you're not in a righteous state and you're living in constant sin, the Bible tells us, and we just read Isaiah 59.2, that God will not hear your prayer. The good news is, as the Bible says in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins... God is righteous to forgive us those sins. He will cleanse us. Then we can approach God in holiness and boldness. And I already read you Hebrews 4, 16 that says approach him boldly. The third reason is doubt. James 1, 6 says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea being blown and tossed by the sin. So when you pray, you pray with faith. That doesn't mean God is going to give you everything but you pray asking God for the answered prayer. Number four, family conflict. Okay, 1 Peter 3, 7, I mentioned this in Psalm 91, that if the husband is not loving the wife in a gentle manner, the prayer of the husband is not going to be answered. That is such a convicting prayer that husbands have to love their wives in the right way. And number five, and this is probably true of a lot of our prayers we don't understand, it's just not the right time. It's not on God's timeline. He's the sovereign God. He has a timeline. God knows what he's doing. And Isaiah 55, 8, 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts and your thoughts. So just because we haven't received an answer to prayer doesn't mean no. God knows what's best for you. But think about, are we asking with wrong motives? Do we have any unconfessed sin in our life? Are we asking, doubting? Is there some family conflict? Or is it just not the right time? Let's move on to number, sub-point number three, remembering God. So in verse three, he says, My soul groaned. Then he says, My mind meditated. My spirit fainted. So the psalmist is so disturbed that he groans. And this isn't the only psalm where the psalmist groaned. There's other psalms where he groaned. He says, when I meditate, he groans because he remembers the past deeds, the past mighty acts of God, the perhaps the, the walls of Jericho coming down or the ten plagues. He remembers how the God of Israel, Yahweh, was a mighty God, almighty God, and he expects God to do the same thing. So if this was the northern tribe being taken away uh, into captivity, it's because of Israel's sin. And maybe he doesn't remember that God promised to bless them when they were holy but also to curse them when they were unholy. But he's meditating, and it's causing him to groan, even causing him to, to his spirit to faint. 
This is a very broken man. Uh, Pastor Ray Stedman said, it's evident here that the psalmist is confronted with two problems, not just one. The first problem is there's something distressing that has brought him to God in verses 1 and 2. But in verses 3 and 4, there's a second problem, and that problem is the apparent failure of God to respond to his prayer. Of the two problems, number two is greater than number one. That is why he says in verse 3, I think of God and I moan. It only makes him feel worse. Why does not God do something? This is the cry that comes welling up out of the depths of his anguish. I think of God and it makes me ask, why doesn't he help me? I moan, I meditate, and my spirit just melts away. So, um, we've, we've talked a lot in our Sunday services in the book of Hebrews about the desert experience. And we always turn to that wonderful chapter in Isaiah 43. That's another chapter that you should have memorized or at least written down. If you're going through a hard time, do you remember Isaiah 43? The, the not if, but the when. Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3 says... O Jacob, he formed you. O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. And then he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. So what we learned on Sunday is you may have to go through the fire, you may have to go through the waters. It's not if, but it's when. And if you were with us on Sunday, Tom Mason took us to that passage in 1 Peter chapter 4. And 1 Peter has more verses about suffering than any other book in the New Testament. And I won't read you. He read verses 12 to 19, but 1 Peter 4, 19 says, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Yes, It is the will of God that some of us suffer. We don't like that verse, but it's true. So he's remembering God. We move on to sub-point number four. He starts to recall God's deeds. So first off, he says, my eyes weary. He says, you hold my eyelids open. He can't sleep. Now, you or I would take a sleep aid or uh, some pill, right? But he doesn't have that option. He blames God for his insomnia. He doesn't have the words to express his anguish. Then he also says in verse 4, My mouth stammered. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. The New Living Translation says, I am too depressed even to pray. He goes from yelling in verse 1 to not being able to speak in verse 4. He's suffering in depressed silence. But you know what? Sometimes silence is good. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty, with, to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. We, uh, Lance gave the example, and we'll study it. In four weeks from tonight, we'll be looking at the book of Job. And remember, before Job's counselors came, his three friends, they sat in silence for seven days. Silence is good sometimes to contemplate. But once the three counselors started talking, they were miserable counselors. Okay, But he... Uh, I think the silence here is good because it gets him to stop thinking about himself and to start thinking about God. It says his mind reflected in verse 5. So his eyes wearied, his mouth stammered, and his mind reflected. Verse 5 says, I considered the days of old, the years long ago. Once again, he's reflecting the days of old. 
but he's not just reflecting on them, he's starting to meditate upon them. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. So he's starting to reflect. Then verse 6, he says, my heart meditated. He said, let me remember my song in the night. Remember, this is a singer. This is probably a choir director in the temple. And he knows all the hymns the Jews know. So he's remembering the songs they had sung at the night, the songs that praise the Lord, the songs that remember the great acts of the Lord. You know, singing praises to God can dispel the darkness of torment, can it? You know, this, this very psalm, Psalm 77, is going to close out with a song, basically. Verses 16 to 20 are pretty much the same as Exodus 15 and Habakkuk chapter 3 when it talks about the parting of the Red Sea. You know, I know it's not easy. When you are down, when you are depressed, when you are discouraged, and there's probably a lot of people in our church who are, and, and sadly, they're probably not here tonight. But you are. But we need to meditate upon God and his attributes and his mighty acts in the Bible. Uh, Lance, Spark- Lance Sparks gave an illustration probably 25 years ago that I never forgot about physical hunger versus spiritual hunger. So when you have physical hunger, you need to eat every day, right? But if you skip breakfast, you're hungry at lunch. If you skip lunch, you're starving at dinner. If you skip your food for one day, you're going to want to eat the next day. You're going to be so hungry, you're going to scarf it down, right? But spiritual hunger is not the same. It's opposite. If you skip your Bible reading on Monday morning, you're probably going to skip it on Tuesday. If you skip it on Tuesday, you're probably going to skip it on Wednesday. So it's really hard when you're not feeling happy or feel like praising the Lord or singing songs or praying. But no matter how hard it is, you need to go into the Word of God. And even though it's the last thing you want to do, it's the most important thing you need to do. And where do you need to go? Psalms. Look at these men. They're normal human beings like us. We want books to satisfy our depression and deeds, right? Some cheerful book by some famous author. We want to watch a Hallmark movie and get encouraged, right? We want our family or friends to come over, or somebody to say something that's so beautiful that we're cheered up, right? But usually, like Job's miserable counselors, they just make it worse, right? But God's word, Hebrews 13 says, 5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Hebrews 2.18 is another verse you need to remember. It says, for because he, Jesus, has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Remember that Jesus Christ was hungry. He was tired. He cried. All the things, Jesus walked in your footsteps. He walked in your shoes. He knows how you feel. Let's move on to sub-point number five, rhetorical questions to God. Here we've got some of the most beautiful poetry in Psalms, and we talked about this in Psalms 88, if you remember. Uh, Many times the, the commentator will just start asking questions to God. And they're always rhetorical questions, which means the answer is no. So uh, Asap may be depressed over the northern kingdom or relatives going into captivity. Uh, He specifically mentions Joseph and Jacob, so possibly it is the northern kingdom. So in Psalms 88, we saw six straight rhetorical questions. Remember, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? 
Uh, are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? So ASAP is going to ask, it depends on your translation. Um, mine, it's five questions, but maybe yours is six. But there are three categories here. Number one category, will the Lord forsake me? Verse 7. So I have one question here, but I think the King James and NSB has two. Will the Lord spurn forever or will never again be favorable? So the question here, is God finished with me? And the answer is absolutely not. And you'll see that in the application when we get to, okay? Uh, Judson, he wanted to die. He dug his own grave. He was depressed. I mean, all those children dying, two wives dying. And even his third wife died just a couple years after he died. So, but that legacy is with the Christians in Myanmar today, that Judson Bible. I mean, so God was not finished with him and God's not finished with you. The second category these rhetorical questions fall under is, will the Lord fail me? And that's in verse 8. And he asks about two attributes of God. Has his steadfast love ceased? Are his promises at an all-in time? So he's saying, has God ceased to love? Because I don't feel your love right now, God. Has God scrapped his promises? Remember, Moses said not one of God's promises fell to the earth. All of them were true. And we know the answer is, of course not. The third category of the rhetorical questions in verse 9. Will the Lord forget me? He says, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? So the question is, has God stopped being gracious? Has his anger stopped? You know, in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God says, I am gracious and I'm merciful. And he was in the Old Testament and he is in the New Testament. So the answer to these six questions in these three categories is no, no, no. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says one of his favorite quotes regarding affliction is this. When God puts his own people into the furnace, he keeps an eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He knows how long and how much, and if we rebel, he may have to reset the clock. But if we submit, he will not permit us to suffer one minute too long. The important thing is that we learn the lesson he wants to teach us in that we bring glory to him alone. We may question why he does it to begin with, or why doesn't he turn down the heat, or even turn the heat off, but our questions are only evidence of our unbelief. Job 23, verse 10 is the answer. But he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Job said that in Job 23, 10. Gold does not fear the fire. The furnace can only make gold purer, and brighter. So sometimes God puts us through the heat, puts us through the furnace to purify us so that we can be used for his kingdom and his glory. So we've looked at Asaph's complaint where he was depressed, but you start to see he's slowly starting to get his eyes off of himself and onto God. So let's look at Asaph's contemplation in verses 10 to 15. Verse 10 is the critical verse in the psalm because this is where the mood changes. So I mentioned in verses 1 to 9, there were 21 personal references about himself, but in verses 10 to 20, only five. Okay? But in verses 10 to 20, there are 26 divine references to God. You, God, your, and, and Lord, and, and different names. So you can see how the second half of the psalm, it's not about ASAP, it's all about God. And that's because the ministry of the Holy Spirit does away with the I, the me, and the my. Asap turns his eyes off himself 
and starts to look for heaven. And he's going to do four things you see in your outline. Number one, he's going to get refocused on God's deeds. Then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. He's going to appeal to the Most High God. You know, that's the name of God, right? In the second half of the psalm, we're going to see multiple names for God. We have Elohim twice in verse 13, once in verse 16. We have El for God in verse 14. We have Yah, shortened for Yahweh, in verse 11. But this is the big one, Elion. And if you've been with, with us in the study of Daniel, you know all about Elion. Psalm 57, 2 says, I cry out to God Most High, to the God who fulfills His purpose to me. This is the God Most High He's appealing to. This name of God Most High is used 19 times in Psalms. It's first used in Genesis 14, 18, and we've talked a lot about it. Let's move on to subpoint number two, remembering God's deeds. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. Have you ever done this? Have you ever meditated upon the deeds of God? Now, usually we're New Testament Christians, so you may meditate upon the cross, okay? But the psalmists, they didn't have the New Testament, so what would they meditate upon? They'd meditate upon creation. Understand that probably half the so-called Christians in America don't really believe in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We do here at Christ Community Church. But he's pondering on creation, the flood, the nations that were scattered, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses in the burning bush, the ten plagues in Egypt, the pillar of fire by day and the pillar of, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. How he provided water and manna and uh, the birds in the desert for 40 years. How about the walls of Jericho falling down? He's just meditating upon those great deeds of God. Number three, we need to reflect upon God's deeds. Same as verse 11, he says, I will ponder your work, and here I'm going to meditate upon those mighty deeds. The New Living Translation says, They are constantly in my thought. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. He wants to get out of depression or discouragement, and that's the key, to start meditating upon the works of God. We've talked about this before. There's five disciplines to Scripture, right? You can hear the Scripture on Sunday, and that's what a lot of people do. You people come out twice a week, so you're going to grow more. You're going to learn more. But hearing is not enough. Hopefully, the pastor's encouragement or the preacher's encouragement gets you to read the Word of God. Every Christian needs to have a quiet time where they're going through the Bible. I'm not a fan of speed reading the Bible, but you need to be have a plan to read the Bible. You don't have to read it in a year, a couple chapters a day. I read one psalm a day. I read one proverb a day. I read two chapters of the Old Testament a day. And then I stay in the same New Testament book for 30 days. That's in the, that study lesson is in the MacArthur Study Bible, if you want it, by the way. But you start reading Hearing, number one, reading, and then you start to memorize Scripture. What is your trial? What is your depression? What is your discouragement? Is it loneliness? You know, are you a young woman praying for a husband? You start to pray, okay? You start to memorize Scriptures about it, no matter what it is. Are you battling some temptation? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 would be a great verse to memorize about temptation. So you memorize Scripture, okay? So you hear, you read, you study, You memorize, but number five is meditation. We talked about taking a verse, maybe one verse when you read the Bible in the morning that jumps out to you. One verse that says, wow, I need to work on that. Maybe it's a promise. Maybe it's a sin to confess. Maybe it's just something, wow, I need to study that more. Write that verse down on a sticky note, you know. 
Put it, put it in the back of your Bible, okay? Put it on your car steering wheel. Put it in your wallet so when you pay for lunch, you pull it out. Say that verse ten times in one day and meditate upon it. The example I used a couple weeks ago was Proverbs 12.25. Anxiety in the heart you know, is going to make a man discouraged, but a good word from the Lord. So I mentioned about when you start thinking about anxiety, you remember Matthew 6 and Jesus says, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. So reflect upon God's deeds. So the number four, he's going to re- now that he's reflected on those deeds, he's going to rejoice in God's deeds. Okay, verse 13 to 15. The psalmist recalls the attributes of God in three ways. Number one, he's going to recall and rejoice that God is holy. Verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? God's way is holy. Holy means upright. So we can trust God. We can trust God that he's doing the right thing. Maybe the northern kingdom is being taken away. Maybe they lost the battle. But God knows what he's doing. And God, we can always trust God to do the right thing, even may, may it be that we don't like what he's doing. Number two, God is powerful. Verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. That word wonders several times in this psalm. You have made known your might among the peoples. In the previous stanza, Asaph reflected upon God's deeds and miracles, his works and mighty deeds. But here, not only is God holy and upright, but God is so powerful that he can put all his holy degrees into action. Number three, verse 15, God is caring. He says, you, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. How do we know God is caring? Because he redeemed. He elected the nation of Israel for salvation, but they, you know what happened with them. He elected us if you have Jesus Christ in your heart. He says it was by his strength only that he redeemed your people. Redeemed here is the same Hebrew word that's used in the book of Ruth for the kinsman redeemer. Okay? Uh, in this context here, it is talking about what we're going to get to in the next five verses, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. So he mentions Jacob and Joseph. It's interesting, in book three of Psalms, Psalm 73 to Psalms 89, there's only 17 Psalms there, but almost all the mentions of Jacob and Joseph are in that Psalms. There's only one other psalm that mentions Jacob and Joseph outside of book 3, and that's Psalms 105. But Psalm 75, 76, 77, 78, 79, 81, 80, they all talk about Jacob and Joseph. Okay, God is holy, God is powerful, and God is caring, even when he allows us to fall in depression like the psalmist. It's part of his loving plan. In times of discouragement or depression, We must have the discipline ourselves to meditate upon God's word. Let's look at the last five verses, paragraph number three, Asaph's comfort. So he's going to talk about the Red Sea, and there are many psalms that talk about Israel's history, Psalm 78, 105, 106, 107, 114, 135, 136. The next psalm, Psalm 78 after Psalm 77, is the second longest psalm after Psalms 119. But here, this last stanza, we're going to see Asaph recalling the most powerful demonstration of God in the Old Testament, and that is the deliverance of the children of Israel in the Exodus from Egypt. God demonstrates his power over using violent nature. We have really beautiful poetry here. It's almost the same as Exodus 15, the Song of Moses, and Habakkuk chapter 3. So number one, God's power was displayed at the Red Sea. Six things happen here. 
It says, the waters trembled. Really interesting verse. It says, the waters looked up and saw you, O God. So this is beautiful Hebrew poetry. With superb literary skill, the psalmist pictures the waters of the Red Sea looking up at their creator. Now notice the next five things. The cloud poured, the skies thundered, the lightning flashed, the thunder sounded, twice it says the lightning flashed, the earth quaked. If you go back to Exodus 14, it doesn't talk about that. It says they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. There's no mention of rain and lightning and thunder. So, some commentators think this is just poetic embellishment language. Well, Pastor Lance is going to be preaching in Hebrews 11.29 in just a couple weeks about the children of Israel having faith to cross the Red Sea. So I asked him to answer the question, did it really rain and lightning flash? I think it did. But this is the only place in Scripture that talks about these things happening. There's no other, there's no other detail in Exodus. Exodus doesn't mention rain, thunder, lightning, or the shaking of the earth. So it could be poetic embellishment or poetic language, but I also think it's realistic history. So God's power was on display and you, you know, the violence you see in nature about what happened there. Number two, God's path was decreed through the Red Sea. God's path was invincible and God's path was invisible. It was invincible. He says, your path, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. God made a highway through the Red Sea. You know, a lot of liberals don't believe that. And I remember hearing a story I hope it's a true, of a liberal Bible professor at one of our liberal colleges saying that this didn't really happen, that the Israelites crossed the Sea of Reeds, and the professor said there was maybe two inches of water, and this young Christian in there said, praise the Lord, which infuriated the professor who's trying to defeat his faith, and the professor says, why are you saying praise the Lord? And he said, well, if the Egyptians drowned in two inches of water, that's a greater miracle than all the... So the professor... The professor was not too happy with him, but I believe it was not two inches of water, and I don't believe it was the reeds, Sea of Reeds, but God made a highway, and they went through on dry land. But it says that your footprints were unseen. God's presence was there, but they couldn't see it. And it's the same with us. I'll bet some of you have that footprints poem in your house. Okay, I'm not going to read it tonight. It's, it's kind of cheesy, but you, you can have it. But it was real popular in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Maybe you still have it. But it's true. When we walk, God's carrying us sometimes, right? And he was there in the Red Sea on that highway. But nobody saw his footprints, but the visible results were there. Number three, God's people were delivered from the Red Sea. He says two things. God led them like a flock, and God led them by his servants. So he says, you led your people like a flock. So this shepherding motive is very common in Psalm 77, 78, 79, and 80, four Psalms. A lot of verses about shepherding. Who's the shepherd here? Well, we know in the New Testament, Jesus is the good shepherd, John 10, right? But here, God is the great shepherd here. God is the one leading. And who are the little shepherds? Well, his servants, Moses and Aaron. So the psalmist is going to close. Verses... Uh, 16, 17, 18, you see the violence of nature that God has displayed, his power. But then in verses 19 and 20, you see the calmness of God. It's a peaceful verse to end. God uses little shepherds like Moses and Aaron to lead the flock. James Boyce says, God who acted in mighty ways in the past to redeem his people 
also acts in calm, tender, and loving ways. And this is what he's doing in the present time, even though it's not been evident to the psalmist before this. The psalmist and the children of Israel were to look back at the greatest demonstration of power in the Old Testament, which is the parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues, and the exodus of Egypt. But as New Testament believers, we look through, we look back to the greatest demonstration of power in the New Testament, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay? At the beginning of the psalm, Asaph was a likely prospect for a psychiatric ward, just like Abraham Judson was. But at the end of the psalm, you see he's calm, cool, and collective. Someone has said, and I want you to remember this, occupation with self brings distress. Got that? When you're occupied with yourself, like the first nine verses, I, 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 instead of God, occupation with self brings distress. Number two, occupation with others brings discouragement. So you want your neighbors to come. You want your friends to come. And like friend, Job's counselors, they don't usually bring a lot of happiness or joy to you, do they? So occupation with self brings distress. Occupation with others brings discouragement. But number three, occupation with Christ brings delight. Okay, remember that? Occupation with self brings distress. Occupation with others brings discouragement. An occupation with Christ brings delight. You know, have a few minutes. I want to finish this psalm talking about a depressed character in the Bible. And you know his name is Elijah. And we studied the book of Elijah on Wednesday nights many years ago. But you remember 1 Kings chapter 18? The height of Elijah's ministry, right? Remember, he tells the Israelites, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal... Then follow him. And you know the story in 1 Kings 18, right? So they have a contest. And the 850 prophets of Baal, they prepare a bull, and they, they try calling the god of Baal to send fire from heaven, and they cut themselves, and they dance around for hours and hours and hours, and the god doesn't answer because it's no god. It's a false god. Then Elijah prepares his bull, and he pours buckets of water and buckets of water and buckets of water out, And he calls on God, and instantly fire comes out of heaven, consumes the bull, and licks up the fire. And all the people cry out, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And immediately Elijah says, Capture the false prophets and execute them. So effectively, in 1 Kings 18, Baal worship is eliminated. It's eliminated out of Israel. They killed all the priests, all the prophets. So this is the height of Elijah's ministry. He's on cloud nine, much like when people go on short-term mission trips with Christ Community Church. They come back from Argentina on cloud nine. They come back fired up, and they want to do door-to-door. They want to do more stuff. But after a couple weeks, they're not so high in cloud nine. So in 1 Kings 19, what happens to Elijah? Well, in the beginning, Jezebel, we talked about that horrible lady last week, right? She says, you know, you're going to be dead tomorrow. So what happens? He gets scared. He runs. You know, and the, the angels, they take care of him for 40 days, and he goes, hides in the cave. And you know the verses about God speaking through the, the, God doesn't speak in the thunder, God doesn't speak in the fire, God doesn't speak in the wind. Just a quiet whisper, God speaks to him. But the verses I want to concentrate on are 1 Kings 19, verses 9 to 19. God's not finished with Elijah. He doesn't send him to counseling. He doesn't uh, comfort him. He says, hey, Elijah, I got 7,000 other people than you who did not bow down to Baal. But 
I'm not finished with you, Elijah. So in 1 Kings 19, he's got more work for Elijah to do. Okay? And he's going to say, let's just go to verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. So the first thing God says, Go appoint Hazel king of Syria. The second thing he says, and Jehu, son of Nishi, you shall appoint to be the king over Israel. So go down to Israel, the northern kingdom, and appoint this guy, Jehu, to be the king there. And thirdly, go appoint Elisha to replace yourself. So God is not finished with Elijah. He had a pity party in chapter 8, 19, after being so high in cloud 9 in chapter 18. Three things to do. God wants to bring us through our troubles in a way that will give us a testimony, that will bring praise and glory and honor to his name. He has not written us off. He is building our character so he can use us in a more powerful way. On the back of your outline, I put a poem there. I don't know if you saw it, and I just want to close and read with that. Beautiful poem I saw when I was studying. The poem says, If God can hang the stars on high can paint the clouds that drift on by, can send the sun across the sky, what could he do through you? If he can send a storm through space and dot with trees the mountain's face, if he the sparrow's way can trace, what could he do through you? If God can do such little things as count our hairs or birds that sing, control the universe that swings, what could he do through you? So maybe you're discouraged tonight. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you think you're depressed. God is not finished with you. He was not finished with Adronium Judson, and he's not finished with you. Let's pray. Father, if there be anybody tonight that's going through some desert experiences, that's going, is down in the dumps or in darkness, is feeling depressed or discouraged, may they remember that Psalm 77, Asap got his eyes off of himself, and got his eyes onto you, and especially onto the great things you've done. Asap did not have the New Testament, but we, Father, know the great works you've done. You died on the cross for our sins. Your sinless son died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and he rose from the dead, and he sits at the right hand of God, and even now interceding for us in our prayers. So, Father, may we not stay in a spirit of depression, a spirit of darkness. May we, like Adronium Judson, like Spurgeon, like Cowper, and like... Job, and like all the other Bible characters, get our eyes focused on you and get out of the funk, get out of the depression. We know that you love us. We know you'll never leave us or forsake us. So I just pray for those who are discouraged. Perhaps there's people in our church tonight that are not here tonight that are suffering. Can we be a source of encouragement to them? May they read Psalm 77 and may it encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we're going to look at Psalm 101. Real short one, Psalm 101, and that's called the Commitment Psalm. It's technically about King David's commitment, but it also applies to our commitment. When you read it, I will, I will, I will, or I shall, 15 times it says I shall or I will. So read it, and we'll study that next Wednesday.